Well, if you would, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you've just joined us, uh, we're journeying through this book and Jude, and I, they are rather obscure books in the New Testament, often neglected. Uh, you, you won't find many commentaries uh, written on 2 Peter. Uh, the Gospel of John, you could fill this room with them. Second uh, Peter, that's a whole different story. And yet, I think it's one of the richest texts in the New Testament. And as we've already seen in chapter 1, 1 through verses 11, we saw Peter's desire that they walk in godliness. In fact, he gives a laundry list of eight virtues, which we looked at. He then we left off at verse 12, and that's where we are. By the way, if you don't have a set of notes from previous weeks and you want them, we do have hard copies back there, or you can go to the website and download those notes, and they're there for you. Peter starts off, verse 12, therefore, and that is a temporal, or not a temporal marker, it's a grammatical marker that, that's taking us back to what's already been discussed. In fact, he says, I intend to remind you constantly of these things. What are these things? I would argue it's back to what he just discussed. That is that we were working out our salvation. Make your calling and election sure. In verse 10, recognition that there's a, an eschaton, there's an end times that awaits in verse 11. And then he goes and states, though you know them and are well established in the truth. It's interesting, these verses that we're, we're going to look at this morning, <clears throat> Peter kind of, he first kind of reminds him how much he loves them and yay, keep up the faith. He's about to take out a club and hit the false teachers over the head with it, and he's going to attack them. But in order to do that, in these verses, he's establishing his credentials. He's saying, ah, let me remind you of who I am, what I've taught you, and the message that I'm delivering to you. So uh, he's kind of, we're setting up all of this before he then lamb blasts the false teachers, what we'll get to next week. And so he says, I, I taught you these things. In fact, you've been well established in the truth that you now have. Indeed, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, he writes, I consider it right to stir you up in a way of reminder, since I know that my tabernacle will soon be removed. Uh, what's he referring to here? What's the tabernacle? His body, Right. The tent is often used as a body. It's temporary. Uh, that's the idea that's being set forth here. Because our Lord Jesus, <clears throat> he states in verse 14, has revealed this to me. Indeed, I will also make every effort that after my departure, the Greek term there is exodus. Uh, it is the same term used at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. Remember, uh, we're going to get to the transfiguration here in a minute, but you had Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus, and they were talking about his exodus. They were talking about his death. Of all the things to discuss on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Christ in all his glory, he's talking about his death, his impending death. Very interesting. That's, we could spend all, all day discussing that. We won't, but we'll go on. You, and that is not the term, by the way, used of the exodus. Uh, the Greek term for that is ekago. It's vastly different than this one, exodus. Uh, you have a testimony of these things, or you, you have a remembrance of these things. And then he moves into verse 16 through 21, defending uh, his message and, his, uh, and, and the message that they have, which we'll get to in a minute. So let's, let's unpack first these few verses, and then we'll move into that, that section. 
looking at your notes under letter A, I said first what we're dealing with is recalling. I'm going to move on. We'll, just, we'll skip this because of time. These had nothing to do with the lesson. They were free. Uh, so I just, you, you lost the free part today. So there we are. So we're dealing first with this farewell address. And it's, it's kind of like his last testimony. If you want a great study, take 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, and look at 2 Peter, Peter's last letter, and compare them. There is a huge overlap. There is much there that both letters are trying to uh, have you be reminded of. It's interesting that, that Peter uses the future tense. You're going, how are you going to remind him if you're about to die? <laughs> right? I'm going to keep on reminding you these things. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, in Trapp in his book on Greek and Latin letters, he, he says, listen, it was an understanding that what I'm pinning is uh, kind of a testimony for all time. And certainly, Peter has First Peter that he's already written. He also has sermons such as Acts, the first part of Acts, remember that? Uh, and he goes, I, I have these recorded stories and I have these messages and the letters that I've written to serve as an ongoing reminder of the things that I've taught you. So even though I'm dead, I still speak, kind of an idea, is what Peter is stating here as he reminds them. And of course, the word remember is, you do a word study in Old and New Testament, it's vital. It's always linked with ethics. I, if, if a writer talks about, well, remember what I've taught you, or remember these things, in other words, sit up, take nourishment, and obey. <laughs> that, that's what's going on here. And it's vital in light of his audience falling prey to false teachers, right? Uh, he, he, he sees, Peter's looking out, and you think about this, here's a guy that in many ways helped establish the church. He preached the first sermon. Right? He, he, he was the ringleader for the disciples, I would argue. Uh, he, he, he preached the first sermon. He, he led, really, the first Gentile to the, to the Lord, Cornelius and Caesarea. I mean, Peter's played a vital role in the early church. And, and there's, he has given much to this cause. And as he looks out, he, and he's about to die, he sees things are unraveling in certain corners of Christendom. It's not good. And he says, you guys are forgetting what I've taught you. Take heed. Remember these things. And, and don't be swayed by those false teachers that are coming along. Well, he says in verse 14, since I know my tabernacle will soon be removed because our Lord has revealed it. Now, some scholars are going to argue, when did Christ reveal this to Peter? He must have had some epiphany later in life. I think it's a reference to John 21. Uh, turn just briefly there. You remember the scene? <clears throat> there are scholars that argue John chapter 21 of this gospel was added later. Uh, I don't believe so. I think it fits very well uh, with the, uh, the gospel. But do you remember Peter did so well in affirming his love for Christ there and, and he has this restoration uh, that Christ gives of, of Peter and things are going well and then once again Peter puts his foot in his mouth at verse 20. So 21 20 Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved which is John not that John was loved more than the others but that John who is the author and just is awed by God's love for him. 
Peter saw him and he asked Jesus, Lord, what about John? Jesus replied, if I want him to live until I come back, what concern is that to you to follow me? Because prior to this, Peter was distressed about following Jesus. And Jesus told him in verse 18, I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around you and went wherever you wanted. Yeah, he's a type A personality. Uh, Peter would be one of those kids you just prayed for nonstop. <laughs> but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will tie you up and bring you where you do not want to go. Jesus had said this to indicate the kind of death Peter was going to encounter for, to glorify the Lord. Uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. It's later in life. Peter's watched Nero take out other Christians. He could be in prison at this point. I mean, you don't have to read the tea leaves. Time is very short. And so Peter, as he's writing, says, listen, this is the last testimony I most likely am going to give uh, to you. Now, questions on those three verses, because they are key, uh, four verses. Uh, this call to remember, again, it hinges on what he just told them. And it's also setting us up for what he's about to, to, uh, to level in the congregation. Well, he ties this then with who he is and the message he delivers. Look what he says in verse 16. For I, no, what's he use? We. 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 Who's the we? The apostles, the teachers of, of the old, right? He says, we did not follow cleverly concocted fables when we made known to you the power and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, we were eyewitnesses of his grandeur. Then, of all the things to cite, because John says in John chapter 1, we beheld his glory, and John takes all of the miracles of Jesus, and glory is directly linked with him. So, we could have looked at the raising of Lazarus. We could have looked at Jesus' resurrection. And yet, what does Peter take us to? The transfiguration. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory. This is my dear son, right? In whom I'm delighted. When the voice was conveyed from heaven, we ourselves heard it. Watch all of the senses. We saw it. We heard it. For we were with him idea we touched it on the holy mountain and this is not mount sinai this is not uh, mount horeb uh, this is probably mount uh, we discuss uh, i think it's mount meron not mount Tabor, where the transfiguration occurred but that's a whole nother discussion the reason that it's holy is because god is present and god is speaking right and it's very significant and i think it ties into psalm chapter two moreover we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing you do well if you pay attention to this as you would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by a prophet's own imagination, for no prophecy was born of human impulse. Rather, men carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God." In this section, he has got to validate the message that he has been giving. In other words, he's laying out his diplomas on the wall. These are my credentials. I have the right to speak as an apostle because of the message that I'm delivering to you. And, and what is the basis for that? 
Well, first of all, he states what it's not. We did not follow cleverly in your notes. There's an air there. It should not be conceited, but concocted fables. I saw that last night and about fell out of my chair laughing because I'd already printed the notes. But there you are. This appears to be, again, it, 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 it's like a Charlie Brown movie. You're hearing this phone conversation. You remember those? Charlie says something and it's wah, 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 wah. You don't hear the other side of it, but we're piecing this together. The false teachers appear to be accusing Peter of, and his company, the other apostles, of, of giving a wrong message. We know later these uh, uh, false teachers, as we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3, are denying that Christ is going to return. You know, this idea there's a, a bodily return of Christ, come on, you know. And, and as a result, let's just make the most of our lives here on earth. Live as you want. Enjoy it. Yeah, Dan. Yes, and that's exactly what Peter's doing. He's talking about remembering. Let me remember what just transpired in the past and even my own life. Why the transfiguration? Why this one? If you turn the page, on page two, I highlight this. The transfiguration is, is brilliant in light of the false teachers, because the false teachers saying, no, there's no future coming of Christ, etc. What does the transfiguration depict? The coming of the kingdom. Turn to Matthew 17. Let's look at this. I want you to see something. This is really crucial to the narrative. It, the transfiguration is so significant in the Gospels, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the watershed. Everything moves up to the transfiguration, and it's all so to speak, downhill to the cross after that. Because right before the transfiguration is when Christ reveals in the synoptics, I'm about to die. And they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not, what do you mean? Because what Peter and company are thinking is, this is the kingdom that set up shop. You're the king and we're going to be princes. That's going to be wonderful. And we're going to reign. <clears throat> and, and so it, 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 everything unravels at the transfiguration. And I, that isn't just Hoffman, it's many uh, other individuals spouse the same teaching here. But Matthew 17, I want you to see going into this transfiguration something very significant. Actually, you need to look at 16. This is an unfortunate chapter break. In 1628, I tell you the truth, Jesus states, it's red letters, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. Temporal marker, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. This is true in Mark, it's true in Luke. The same thing is stated. Some of them will not taste death till they see the kingdom. The transfiguration is a depiction of the kingdom. Christ in all his glory. That is why Peter says, "Woo, this is it. Set up three booths. And God has to say, shut up, Peter. You have no idea what you're talking about. This is not it. Right? I know what kids can't say that word, but I did. It's just, yeah, I'm sorry. Right? So what, what you have with the transfiguration is vital because number one, it depicts the coming of the kingdom, the very thing the false teachers are denying. So Peter says, listen, <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. I was there. 
and I saw it. And I, I wasn't smoking mushrooms. Uh, J- James and John also saw the same thing. We were there on that holy mountain. Right? A picture, again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right before they showed the transfiguration in the narrative, they say this is a depiction, some of you, of the kingdom. And some will not taste death till they see it. And there it is for them, right there. So it's not, it, it, um, by the way, you know why John doesn't include the transfiguration? Because the, the question is, if it's so significant, why doesn't he include it? Because for John, God's glory of, in Christ is seen from the very get-go. He's exalting Christ from the get-go. Uh, for the synoptics, we kind of ooze into it, and now we see Christ in all his glory. They're not denying the glory wasn't there in the first place, but they're highlighting it with the transfiguration. So that's why. Very significant. Well, going back to the text, and stop me if you have questions. First, first thing that he is trying to show is this, the kingdom is coming, and I've seen it. I, I know what, we're, what we have in store. Lazarus is probably dead by now, but Lazarus could also testify what waits on the other side, right? But uh, Peter says, hey, I, I've seen this. I know it's true. Because remember, the concocted fables, look what it says in verse 16. What are the false teachers accusing them of? Of telling these myths or these unreal stories that are trying to dupe people. It says to you, the power and return of our Lord. There it is. That's what they're trying to attack on. That Christ is not coming back. This has all been made up by the apostles to try to have control over you, to try to manipulate you, etc. Second, it confirms Christ's deity, the Mount of Transfiguration. Citing Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, what Peter is doing here as well as what we saw in the synoptics is that Christ is being elevated to God and he's demonstrating that he is God himself. He's the son of God who fulfills the Isaiah 42, the servant. I mean, it's, it, the theology here is huge and we don't have time to go into it to great detail, but there's no doubt what the transfiguration shows that, that Christ is deity. He is God and he is capable of coming back and he will come back because he's kept his word. And here's the third point. It dispels any doubts concerning Christ. This fits really with, I realize it overlaps with the, the second point. As I mentioned, I quote Green from Second Peter, the one whom God declared to be king will be enthroned. His coming is sure. Whatever the pallid objections for the heretics might be, they raise their doubts, but God the Father, the majestic glory has spoken. It is, it will happen. And Peter said, I was there. What I'm telling you, I know because I saw it, I heard it, I touched it, I was there. And you're going, okay, that's good. That's the first defense. But his message, the veracity of the message isn't just that it's rooted in what he's experienced, but also the prophetic witness. Notice in the text, he says here, Moreover, we possess a prophetic word as altogether a uh, reliable thing, is how the Net uh, Bible translates it. The being made more certain can be debated. Some have argued that what Peter is saying is that I had this experience, but far more sure is this. But that downplays 
his argument that what he experienced was also very valid. Uh, I think what is going on here, and I think Mu is correct, the being made more certain is that his experience on the uh, with the transfiguration only further confirms the veracity of the, the word of God. I think that's what he's trying to argue. And Mu highlights this. He says that, um, suggesting that his testimony about the transfiguration gives to the prophetic word an even greater certainty than it had before. Not that we didn't doubt the word, but this experience I had only shores up the prophetic word that we had in the past. Now, what is the prophetic word? Some would argue it's the entire Old Testament. I think more, I'm more inclined that it's prophetic teaching about the eschaton, the end times that he's highlighting. Not that the rest of Scripture isn't valid. It isn't without error. I, 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 you know, we'll talk about all that. But uh, specifically here is in reference to Christ returning. He said, that, that, that is a sure thing. And I, I know that because I saw it. Questions on this? Uh, I've heard, again, I've heard people say that what Peter is saying, that his experience wasn't as great as the word. I, I don't think that's what he's saying here. Uh, and I think Moo is right. Yeah, Rick. Well, James, the, the writer of that epistle, is not James the Apostle. No, this is the half-brother of Jesus that wrote the, the epistle. Uh, the James and John, that were, those were the sons of thunder. The, the, good question. Those were the, the, the disciples are broken up into three groups. And if you look, there are three names that are always in the same slot. You know these laundry list of disciples? Three of them always occur in the same location. I think they're the leaders of the three subgroups uh, of, of the 12. And uh, the, the inner circle was always Peter, James, and John. It's, a, it's an interesting model for discipleship, for those of you involved in ministry. Uh, Jesus couldn't minister to everyone on the same level. And he seemed to uh, work with three in particular. Yeah, yeah, rock. Douglas Moo is a uh, New Testament scholar. I think he's at Wheaton now. He was at Trinity. Is that right? Anyone? Don't know. Okay. Yeah, Douglas Moo is his name. He's written, his commentary on Romans is dynamite. And I, and I love his commentary on Second Peter. And I think I put that on the reference list. There's a blue sheet with some. There you are. It's, there you go. Thanks, Paul. It is. Moo is excellent. Yeah, he's very good. By the way. Uh, you know, every October we have a guest speaker. Uh, we've got uh, Doug Ch or, Robert Chisholm, Old Testament guy from Dallas. He's fabulous, and he's agreed to come. So we'll give you more details on that. Moo is someone that uh, I'd like to tap down the road. Uh, some of these scholars are great authors. They're not always the most ex uh, stimulating <laughs> speakers. So anyway, I'll leave it at that. Chisholm, on the other hand, is dynamite, and I am thrilled that he's agreed to come. But anyway, we'll give you more. That was free. So let's go back to this. <clears throat> he says, our prophetic witness that we have is more sure. It is certain, uh, and it's verified by this. And he, he uses, again, some word pictures here. 
to try to draw that connection about a light shining in a murky place uh, throughout Scripture. The Word of God is seen as a light, isn't it? Psalm 119, uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. Um, and the reference to the day dawning, do you see that? seems a little odd. I think the day dawning is the day of the Lord. It's the end. It's when God will judge the wicked, the, His enemies, and He will bring salvation to His people. The day of the Lord, <clears throat> I've listed there some Old Testament text, and you can look at that. And the morning star, I believe, is Christ. Uh, he's referred to as such throughout Scripture. In other words, he's saying, listen, look at the text. Look what he says. You do well to pay attention. The Word of God shines, and there is a day coming when Christ will return, and the end of the day is there. Now, <clears throat> he moves to verse 20, and he says, you do well if you recognize this, and this next sentence is translated differently in various English versions. Gary, let me move. If you don't mind, I'll catch him. Um, if, there, there are two ways to render this text, and this is interesting. Uh, no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own imagination. How many of you have that in your English Bible? A few of you? Pro or it can be rendered someone's own interpretation. Who has this one? Several of you have the not-so-inspired versions. Good. Uh, all right. Actually, the NIV and the Net Bible take it as this. The e ESV, is that which one you have? The, the, okay, the New American Standard. I think the, uh, does anyone have ESV? Is it ESV takes the second one? Either one are viable. And it's a little, but they are vastly different in their interpretation, aren't they? What's the first one saying? that the writers themselves, in other words, Peter is, is making a defense of the, the message. Here, he's attacking the false teachers. They're, they're different renderings. Uh, and either one is viable from the Greek, and that's what makes this extremely difficult to assess. Uh, and you see this in your notes. Um, Again, here he's defending himself against the false teachers. Here he's attacking the false teachers. This is that scripture, the writers, they didn't uh, just, you know, smoke something and then put this down. That didn't happen. The other is you can't just take a text and make it say whatever you want. Uh, either one is viable. Either one we could defend elsewhere from scripture, couldn't we? Right? I think the immediate context lends itself to the first view. Uh, I'm going to lean with the NIV and the Net Bible on this one. And the reason being is verse 21. Because he, he talks about the human authors uh, were guided by the Lord. So he seems to be going back to the, to the authors themselves of these books, the, the prophets who wrote them. Uh, in the immediate context, and you can agree or disagree. Um, what's he saying here? Well, first of all, well, if we lean with the first view, none of this is made up. What we have here is, in fact, they are so much so that God is overseeing it that he guides them in the text. The, the word here is a sailboat moved by the wind. That God is directing them. I think of uh, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is what? God breathed. 
that term is found nowhere else. It's a term that, that Paul makes up, uh, invents. It's a hapax legomena. God breathed. They, uh, he, he's saying it, it, it's the very breath of God is guiding it. Yeah, in, in uh, Acts. Acts uses the same idea where the, wind, the ship is let loose and the, the, the storm guides it. When we're dealing with, the term here is 50 cent word is inspiration. It is, it is God breathes. It means that God oversees the entire process. What it doesn't mean is dictation. God did not tell the human author, you will write each word as seen fit. You say, well, how do you know that? <clears throat> The withered hand miracle, only Dr. Luke tells it's the right one. The gospel that refers more to coins than any other, other gospel and uses specific terms is Matthew, our tax collector. So the human side of our authors is still seen, but God oversees the entire process. There is a tension here. There is a mystery. I'm not denying that. But inspiration, according to Second Peter and Second Timothy, it's God who oversees every bit of it. And it implies that the origin and its interpretation stems from God. <clears throat> so you can't just make a text say whatever you want it to say. And in our circles, the danger is not heretical teaching. The danger is we use it as a springboard to say something that we land on two feet. What we say is good, but that's not really what the text is talking about. Drives me bonkers. I hear sermons. I'm going, no, 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 no. That's not what the text says. You're doing no different than a, a, a heretic. The only thing is you're landing on two feet that's solid. But that's not what the text is saying. Careful. Charles Ryrie, in his Basic Theology, writes, and it's in your notes on page three. God sometimes revealed things supernaturally and directly. Sometimes he allowed the human writers to compose his message using their freedom of expression. But he breathed out the total product, carrying along the authors in various ways to give us his message in the words of the Bible. And that's what Peter is stating. Peter's saying, listen, what I'm calling you to remember is based on the word of God, the prophetic word that is from God himself. And this is valid. And we cannot forget this. And the false teachers can say all they want to say, but this is what the text teaches. There are three implications, and I have them in your notes. <clears throat> the first, if God does not lie, which he does not, then he cannot utter falsehood. If the scriptures are God's word, then the scriptures must be without error. The, the term here is what the, we use inerrancy, and I know many of you know this. But I, I mentioned this in your notes. Careful, even in matters related to history, geography, or dating, there can be no error. If there's an error here, who's to say there's not an error throughout? I think of, I love taking people to Jerusalem to, just off the Via Della Rosa, there's St. Anne's Church, but the significance of that is that's the pool of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is right there. It's right, and it has five porticos. In the late 1900s, German scholars said there is no evidence of the pool of Bethesda, so it must not be, and they denied it and said scripture was wrong. 
in the early 1900s, late, that was late 1800s, early 1900s, that pool was found by archaeologists, and it took a truckload of German scholarship into the ocean because it was wrong. Yes, there's some things that uh, are difficult to show or demonstrate. We don't have some biblical sites. Does that mean they don't exist? Was the scriptures wrong or we just haven't found them? And, and I'm preaching to the choir. But if it, God's word is, if it's his word, it's without error. Secondly, and this is key here, the truthfulness and authority of scripture cannot be diminished or eliminated by our personal preferences or cultural biases. Careful. I mean, if it was up to me, I'd cut out some of James <laughs> on the tongue. That'd be great. I can't do it. I sit under Scripture, right? I had my pre-seminary guys going off to seminary, and, you know, they, they were waxing eloquent, and the Greek thought they were hot stuff. I said, remember, you don't sit above the Word, you sit under it. And I watched time and time again, Tom Abernathy's son could testify as well, Andrew, of guys who shipwrecked in the faith because all of a sudden they thought they were far more superior than the text. Be very careful. Uh, and, and this uh, fits, I, I just think hearing the rhetoric on abortion that we're hearing, that's so contrary to Scripture. I mean, John the Baptist was leaping in his mother's womb in the presence of Jesus and Mary had just conceived. <laughs> That's the first trimester, right? The truthfulness and authority of Scripture in that cannot be diminished or limited. Why? Because it's God's Word. And then finally, the Lord superintending the words of Scripture indicate, as I mentioned in your notes, its sufficiency. It's inspired, it's inerrant, and it is sufficient. And, and Grudem states it well. The Bible contains all the words of God we need for trusting and obeying Him perfectly. This giant in the faith is about to die. And as he looks out, he says, men and women, don't forget what I've taught you. And don't forget what it's rooted in. Yeah, I've got my experience and I can testify what I'm telling you is true. But we got the word of God. We must cherish it. And I, I know this morning, it's just, this is just a reminder. You all know this. This is why you're here studying the word. Keep it up. Calvin states, it's at the bottom of the notes, let us know then that the true meaning of Scripture is the natural and obvious meaning and let us embrace and abide by it resolutely. Let us not only ne ne neglect as doubtful but bodily set aside as deadly corruptions those pretended expositions which lead us away from the natural meaning, holding fast to the Word. Father, there's so much here we could discuss today. It is a loaded text. And there is much that we don't understand in Scripture. Peter even says that of Paul's writings, that some are hard to understand. But there's so much here we do know, so much that uh, we can recall as we study. Help us to cherish your word, but help us to live under it, more importantly. And help us not to compromise. It's so easy to do when we have family members who are going a certain direction or our culture help us not to bend but to walk in grace and love but in firmness and truth we thank you we praise you in jesus name amen